0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll be looking this morning at the first six verses, maybe emphasizing the first, the first ones more than the, the latter ones. But what a special day this is to remember the Lord's death by passing out the bread and drinking the cup. This is by, by remembering the Lord's death and the elements this morning, we are obeying the Lord's command. He has, he has required us, he has commanded us to do this often until he returns. So this very thing this morning is an act of obedience that we have now been doing as the church for some 2,000 years. And so this morning, we're going to look at what does it mean to be an authentic believer, just a real genuine believer, one that is approved by God, one that God looks upon and says, wow, I can find approval in this. This is where I find approval. And the first six verses give us a great clue about the motive of ministry, about just being authentic and being real and being able to have the stamp of approval of God on our lives. And that's what we want. We want our lives to be approved by God. We want him to be rejoicing and and thankful and and glad for our lives here on earth as we live them out in obedience to his word. So before we get to that, let's pray. And then part of the text actually is a, is a review in chapter 2. He reviews how he founded the church in Thessalonica. And so we'll be talking a lot about how that church was established. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the church. Thank you that you have sent your son to die and with his own blood paid for this church. And we now um, are responding with love and public worship and private worship and devotion. And even this morning, obedience to your command regarding the Lord's table. But we pray that each one of us would be found approved by you. That we, having been entrusted with the gospel, our lives would reflect what we actually believe. So please, Father, help us to grow and to be spiritually minded, dedicated men and women who are passionate followers of jesus christ we want to be known as your disciples so father give us words of encouragement and strength and reminder this morning to your honor and to your glory we pray amen now in this text first thessalonians chapter two you'll see that paul repeats himself with the word knowing over and over he'll say thessalonians remember this you knew this you know this Um, God is my witness you are my witness you know this let me remind you it's always reminding and knowing and knowing everything that Paul is talking about in first Thessalonians 2 they remember they they with their mind they can actually picture what were they wearing that day when they got up and they went to the church and they gathered together as an assembly of believers Paul is saying all I want you to do is remember this remember this because they were to be imitating the apostle Paul who was imitating Christ all right Paul is now saying, here is what you have been imitating. Continue to imitate after me. Continue to live like I have been living. Now, this is our church here in Hermantown wanting to imitate the Thessalonians who are imitating Paul, who is imitating Christ, right? So I'm asking you today to do something huge. I'm asking you as a church to imitate these verses, to actually live these out, and you will thereby be imitating what the Thessalonians were doing, which was what Paul was doing, which is what Christ wants. So that's the goal. It's huge. It's a huge thing, but not just as a church. Individually, we must be doing this as well, all right? Here's the text, 1 Thessalonians 2, and I broke it into four points to remember. For you yourselves know, brethren—see the word know—you know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain— But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, see the phrase again, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you, the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God, there's my key phrase, as we have been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, again, that phrase, nor a cloak for covetousness, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. All right, so this is our task. Now, these are not just words on a page. They are to be taken and lived out. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, every single day of the week. So what I'm giving you here is not something that you can just tuck away and say, yep, I learned it and I've got it. And now I'm going to move on to the next text. No, we take it and, and it, it changes. It has to change us. It has to affect us. Well, let's talk quick about the Thessalonians. Who were they? Well, remember their city is so much like our city. As I mentioned last week in the introduction, the city of Thessaloniki, even today, is situated on a bluff, much like our bluff, the Piedmont Central High, That whole bluff is just like Thessaloniki. They were a port city, just like we're a port city. They were on the Thermaic Gulf, part of the Aegean Sea. We're, of course, the port here at, lakes, at the tip of Lake Superior. So we're a port city built on a bluff, just like Thessaloniki. Our population's about 80,000 or a little less. Their population was about 80,000 or so. They were a working town, all sorts of trades and and commerce going on. And since there was a major port there, lots of shipping and merchants and lots of tourism and lots of people coming and going all the time from all over the world, they'd end up right there in Thessaloniki. Not only that, we have I-35 cutting through our downtown region. They had the Ignatian Highway the major east-west highway of Rome. Do you know how many people in the Roman Empire would travel that road? It would be crowded all the time. You'd be traveling back and forth. You want to get to the um, one part of the Roman Empire, you'd have to cut right through Thessaloniki. So you see what kind of position they had. People coming by boat, people coming by road from all over the empire. And if they could share the gospel of Jesus with these people, they leave Thessaloniki Singing hymns of praise to God and talking about Jesus wherever they go. Do you see how at Thessalonians, the Thessalonians had such a powerful outreach? We have a huge outreach. People come into our city from all over the world in this global society airports, highways, boats. And everybody that we reach with the gospel takes the gospel with them to that city or country that they live in. True? We have foreign exchange students at Procter. You know what I love about foreign exchange students. We can share the gospel with them and they can take it back with them and be missionaries in their own cities and their own countries. That's pretty exciting. We have that capability just like the Thessalonians did. And they did it. Paul said, hey, you know what I remember about you? You had a work of faith. You were genuinely believers. It, you really trusted in Jesus. You had a labor of love. You are busy beyond the, a matter of exertion and sweat and tears serving one another with love and you were waiting for jesus to return what remember that was last week's message work of faith they had this labor of love labors of love and they were waiting patiently for jesus to come back and then paul said listen when you grabbed hold of the gospel you became imitators of me and you became followers of jesus christ paul said this your gospel witness was so effective that paul did not even have to share the gospel he would tell people, let me tell you about Jesus of Nazareth. And they, they would say, sorry, we heard about it from the Thessalonians. Now, he's not even in Thessalonica anymore. He's way down in Athens. So he's down in Athens, and he's talking to people, and they're like, well, no, we already heard that from the Thessalonians. So he's like, you people are putting me out of a job. Your witness is so powerful, I don't have it to say anything even. Well, wouldn't you love that, where people would say, people from another part of the country would say, Let me tell you about Jesus, and they'd be like, well, we already heard that. We already heard that from Faith Baptist in Hermantown. They've already shared that good news with us. This is what the Thessalonians were like. Oh, what a church. They were a church to imitate. As a matter of fact, it is the only church that Paul ever said it is a model church you can pattern yourself after. You want to be one type of church in the Bible? Be a Thessalonian church. Now, here's what Paul said. My first point is this. You want to be approved by God? You want his stamp of approval? Number one, your allegiance must be to Christ. All of your allegiance must be to Christ. There can be no half-heartedness. There can be no, I'll, here. You know what most people do with Jesus? They tack him on like an exercise class. They do. They say, hey, I want a good life. So I'm going to do all the stuff I want to do. I'm going to spend my time watching TV and playing my sports and working at my job and buying the things and selling the things and doing this and that. And I want to have one hour a week or three hours a week of exercise. And so I'm going to add that into my, my whole life regimen. And so many people say, you know what? I need Jesus, and I'm going to have him three times a week, this hour, this hour, and this hour. I'm just going to add him in like a big health package. Oh, a little bit of Jesus is going to spice up my life, and it'll help me for eternity. That is the absolute wrong attitude towards Jesus. for Jesus Christ. It's all or nothing. Either we, our allegiance is all to him, or it's not at all to him you understand? There is no room for middle ground. I still think about the day when Elijah stood on Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, and he's up there, and he's preaching to all the people of Israel, and you've got all the false prophets and priests and the priestesses right there, and he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? You say you love God, the God of Israel, but you serve the gods of Baal. How long will you falter? Literally, the word falter in 1 Kings 18 means to walk with a limp. How long will you limp along between two opinions? If God is God, then follow him wholeheartedly. If Baal is God, then follow him and do it wholeheartedly, but don't play the game of in the middle, right? And after he finished this great speech, what did the nation of Israel say? Did, did they say, yes, God is God. Let's chase him. Let's pursue him. Let's live for him. It says, and the people answered him, not a word. They were like, hmm, so who is God? We don't know. And then fire came down from heaven, and then they finally understood God is God. So here's how Paul says it in chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, it's only been, I would guess, maybe six, six months or so since the church was founded. That's it. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It was not empty of fruit. It it, it wasn't useless. It, it actually accomplished something. Listen. When Paul walked into the marketplace at Thessalonica, or he went to the synagogue first, and he walked in the doors, and his garment was bloody and torn from the beatings in Philippi, he had still had marks on his ankles from his feet being put in the stocks. His back was still freshly wounded, even though the Philippian jailer washed washed all the wounds. When he walked in the doors of the synagogue or he walked into the marketplace and he said, Jesus Christ is the savior of the world. Let me show you. It was not empty. It was not in vain. It actually changed lives. There was transformation. Do you believe this or not? Was there transformation? Radical transformation so that this group of pagans who did not know anything about Jesus, then became Jesus' followers. Now, let me ask you, is that kind of power still available in the church today? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Do you, no, no. Do you really believe it? Or do we falter between opinions? No, we really believe it. When you go into this community and preach the gospel, it is not in vain ever, ever. It will produce fruit. What's the problem? We just got to go out and do it. All we have to do is do it and it will produce fruit. We don't have to make it produce fruit. It just does. It's the power of God unto salvation. Do you know why we don't do it? We fear rejection. And the one thing we hate as Americans is we hate rejection. We don't want to be rejected. We don't ever want to come in second. We don't ever, we hate being rejected. And so the thought of going out and being rejected stops us from giving the gospel but we don't have to worry about the results. The results are not our issue. Our issue is delivering the goods, delivering the message of Christ. And so Paul says, When I came into your synagogue and your marketplace, your life was changed. Your life was changed. Who are some of the people from Thessalonica? Remember Aristarchus? Aristarchus was a, his name means rich ruler or best ruler. He was one of the leading political men of the whole society. And he radically changed. Paul says, Listen, Aristarchus. It was not in vain for me to go and present the gospel to him. Now, let me tell you this. When Aristarchus went back to the political assembly and they said, hey, before you come up here and make any judgments or rulings for the city, take a pinch of incense and give allegiance to Caesar. What do you think Aristarchus did? As a new believer. I can't do that. I just give my allegiance to, to Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. All right, Aristarchus, you're out of here. No more power, no more prestige for you. Get out, you're unwanted. Can you imagine what these Thessalonians had to go through? And Paul says, listen, you know that when I came, it wasn't in vain, it radically transformed your lives. You are no longer the same men and women doing the same things. You're not celebrating the same rituals and customs of the pagan gods. You are different people. And then he goes on and he says this, verse two. But even after we had suffered before, and were spitefully treated at Philippi. He brings up the Philippi experience. Two things: he was suffered and he, and he was mistreated. Now, do you know why he suffered? Because he was at the river there in Philippi. And if you, I could just bring you to Philippi right now, you'd love it. Philippi, you come up from Neapolis on the Ignatian Way, and there's the the city of Philippi. And there's a big valley, which the the Battle of Actium took place in, all that great history. Anyways, there's a river right there in Philippi today. And I've been able to sit at that river and read this text in Acts 16. And there Lydia was. And God opened Lydia's heart. Lydia, the seller of purple, gets saved. And her life totally transforms. Was not in vain for him to even go to Philippi, and then there's a slave girl who was possessed by a demon, and the her masters were making tons of money on this demon possessed slave girl, and the slave girl was taunting and following after Paul, and Paul turns around and says, "Demons, get out of her!" And she she trusts the Lord, and now the the masters, um, all of their money is gone. They they can't, they're not making any money off of her, so they get mad, and they have Paul and silas stripped and beaten with rods so there's broken bones and bruises that's the idea of suffering paul says you remember how i came to thessalonia having suffered in philippi broken bones they don't mend that quick he must have had some kind of bandages or maybe some wood splints and then his back was laid open with stripes and then as i mentioned last week he was put in stocks in the inner prison Paul says, "Listen, you know where my allegiance was. even after, even after I suffered like that in Philippi, I still wanted to come to your city and do the same thing. Do you see where his allegiance was? It wasn't in his own personal comfort. And then he was a Roman, and you never do that to Romans, not without a trial. and he had no trial, and here he is a Roman citizen, they mistreated him, so he, he suffered, and then legally he was mistreated. In Philippi, Paul says, that didn't stop me from coming to preach the gospel to you. Even after I had suffered and was spitefully treated, I still came to you. You know where my allegiance lie. Listen, where's our allegiance? The other day, I was driving to the church, coming here to get stuff done at the church, at the building. And um, I, it was raining and it was those cold, rainy, drizzly day. could pick your day. it was any one of those days, but it was one of those days that's fascinating and Do you know I saw the uh, uh, little league game or some some youth baseball game at the field here in Hermantown, and the cars and the parents and the children all in the rain I mean it was raining enough for me to use my windshield wipers and i don 't know how long the game lasted, but i 'm sure it lasted more than an hour and I didn't see anybody saying, well, this isn't for me. This is too taxing for me. This is way, I don't want to spend my hour doing it. No. You want to see your kids play ball and do well and get to first base or a home run. Or for me, just to even hit the ball with the bat was all I needed to be, say, wow, that was a good day at the ball field. I didn't even need to get to a base. But, so, boy, we don't have any problem giving allegiance to things like that, Right? But if we were to say, hey, we're going to have church, but sorry, we have to meet for one hour. It's going to be foggy and drizzly, and it's going to be out in the open. Can you just stand there for one hour while we sit under the teaching of the word and we pray together? What would we say? No way! I can do that at home in my own recliner. I don't, I'm not going to gather together. I mean, we would find almost any excuse not to have to gather together regularly. Isn't that tragic that our allegiance could be so fickle in our society? We can give great allegiance to so many things, but where do we give it even to the Lord? Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans, he was born in 1615. Listen to this. Here's what Richard Baxter said. In 1615, he died in 1691. He said, were you but as willing to get the knowledge of God and heavenly things as you are to know how to work your trade? Okay, do you see what he's saying? Oh, if you could put your time and energy into the work of God and heavenly things, but as much time as you put into your trade you would have set yourself to it before this day, and you would have spared no cost or pains till you had got it. But you account seven years little enough to learn your trade and will not bestow one day in seven in diligent learning of the matters of your salvation. Isn't it true? We, our kids go through 13 years of school to get out of high school, counting kindergarten, and, and how many hours a day, six, seven hours a day, they go to school and they sit under the teaching of mathematics, English, and then other worldly things. Um, you know, geography is important, and science and things, but often from a worldly perspective, if depending on the setting. We have no problem devout, devoting hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of hours having our children sit to learn the basics, and then we think one hour in church, or three hours, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night in church is too much. Well, that's a huge demand. How can the church demand Sunday morning and Sunday night? Not that we demand it, but you know what I'm saying? Because I, I obviously don't demand anybody to come to any service. It's all voluntary. But I'm thinking in my mind, we have no problem giving allegiance to all these things, but when it comes to Christ, where's our allegiance? It's like, well, he, I'm going to add him in like an exercise class. I'm going to add him in like just here and there where I need him, but only where I need him and not anywhere else. I don't know. Am I wrong here? I don't know. I struggle with this in my own life. I struggle with it. And Paul says, but even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, because they can still picture his wounds, we were bold in our God to speak to you, the gospel of God, in much conflict, in much agony. He was so concerned about the gospel of God that even his own comfort, it didn't matter to him. His allegiance was in the right place. He didn't, it did not matter. He could have easily have said, I don't want to go through another beating. I had, I, during the Galatian, my Galatian tour, his first ministry tour, man, they treated me bad. I was stoned and left for dead outside Lystra. Revolt and, and, and rebellion one after another in Galatia. And now in Philippi, I don't want this kind of life. This is not what I signed up for. No, he didn't say that. So where is our allegiance? You know, I was thinking about something else this week. John chapter six. You know, the Lord is, okay, picture this. He's got a group of 5,000 men plus women and children. So maybe 12,000 altogether. 5,000 men, after each had one wife, 10,000 people. They all have a couple of kids, 12,000 people all together. And Jesus gets a little lunch, the fish and the bread. And what does he do? Feeds the whole group. So you got 12,000 just fed people. What happens the next day? They all come back, and I'm dealt, I don't, I, and I guess I, I bet they brought visitors. They all come back to find Jesus the next day. They just had a cool lunch from Jesus, really phenomenal fish and bread lunch, and they're like, This guy gives free lunches. I'm gonna get every neighbor of mine to get over to see Jesus tomorrow because we're gonna get more of the same. So they all show up, and they've got a gigantic crowd now in Capernaum, right there on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, He's got the crowds. He's got, the, the, he's got everything is going his way, doesn't he? You would think at this point Jesus would say, oh, I love big crowds. Come on, I want to get everybody here. Let's get everybody. No, you know what he does? He says, you guys are wanting another physical lunch, but I have something bigger than a spiritual lunch for you. I have spiritual food that you should eat. And the spiritual food gets it. He says this, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's what he says. He says this to the crowd. And do you know what they think? Ick. That's not what we signed up for. Now, what's, what's tragic about the end of John 6, here's what's tragic about it. He has tens of thousands of people that he's preaching to, and he preaches a message of, of salvation and discipleship. You want to follow me? There's only one way to do it. Eat my, bre- eat, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Meaning total allegiance to this man. Those who were his followers, his curious followers, they, they left and departed until how many were left? Twelve. His own, the only ones left were his twelve. Everybody else said, there's no way I'm going to give allegiance to this man. There's no way. Remember in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is preaching, and people are like, Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to follow you. And then Jesus said, um, let's look at it. Luke, look look at this. Luke chapter 9. Quickly, this is a little bit extra, but I think it's worth it. Luke chapter 9. Here are the very words of Jesus. Luke 9.57. They're journeying on their way to Jerusalem. And there's three examples of people that their priorities and their allegiance is just totally out, out of whack. It's just totally not proper. Verse Verse 57. Now, it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Isn't that true? When you're first a believer, it's like, yes, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. You tell me whatever you want me to do. I'll go, and I'll do it. Then the Lord says, I want you to get a Bible education and become a pastor. No, Lord, I didn't want to do that. No, 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 I don't want to do that. Oh, well, then I want you to go and... Um, I want you to go and reach your neighbors with the gospel, and I want you to you know, um, sell your possessions and, and reach the lost with, those, with, with that. Well, no, Lord, you never said anything about me losing any of my material possessions. I wanted to tell those. You know, I, I, I expected to keep all of those in our deal. So here the man says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You want to follow after Jesus? It'll cost you maybe comfort. It'll maybe cost you a place to sleep. It may cost you everything. Who knows? Another one said to the Lord, verse 59, um, Jesus said to this man, follow me. He said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Maybe he was concerned about his earthly inheritance. He thought, hey, I'm not going to get my inheritance until my dad dies. Once my dad dies, then I'll get my earthly inheritance, and then I can start following you. But not until then. Until then, I'm not going to do anything for you until I get everything in order that I want I've got to have everything. I want all my inheritance. I want everything. And then I can include you in part of it. And the Lord says, sorry, you can't be here then. And then the last person, verse 61, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus is like, either you're following me or you're not. Where are you? Who are you? And he says this, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You are not fit for the kingdom of God if you say you love Jesus and then you turn back and you don't. Then you don't. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, you want approval of God? Then your allegiance has to be to him only. Remember how Paul says, I suffered and was mistreated in Philippi, and yet I came and I was bold in our God to preach the gospel of God to you. And it all was not in vanity. It all had effect. So you want to, you want to have a great influence and, and impact in eternity? Be bold in your God to declare the gospel of God to everybody in our community. But have your allegiance only to him. No half-heartedness. No thought of, yes, I'm going to include Jesus, but he really wants me to have the American dream, and I'm going to have the American dream plus Jesus. Sometimes the American dream can be part of it. I mean, Abraham was a rich man with lots of luxury, and David was, and Solomon was, and they were um, men of God. But whatever, wherever he calls us, whatever he calls us, let's be faithful with allegiance to him. All right. Um, I have to do this. All right, sorry. I was just debating, and I just decided. I'm going to take you quickly to the Corinthian church. Cause I want to uh, dealing with the Lord's, tu- since this is the day of the Lord's supper, let me talk about the Corinthians and the legions to you. Can I do that quickly? First Corinthians eight through 10. Here's what Paul's talking about in first Corinthians eight through 10. The Corinthians were pagan before they were believers in Jesus. They were pagan worshipers. They would often go to the temple of Aphrodite up on the hill and on the, on the Corinth hill. And there they would have all sorts of immorality they would go into the Temple of Apollos and live it up and party with great enthusiasm. The drunken parties, the idol worship, they loved it all. But then they became believers in Jesus. And their allegiance should have been only to Jesus. So in First Corinthians 8, Paul says, for those of you who think you have knowledge about everything, you think, you think that an idol is nothing. And Paul says, and in a way, you're right. Idols are nothing. Hey, you guys, if... This was an idol. If if one culture thought this was an idol, is this really living? No. Is this an idol? No. We know it's simply a basket. It's not an idol, right? And so we have enough knowledge to say this isn't an idol. We don't bow down to it. And the Corinthians said, since this isn't an idol, we are not bowing down to it, but we can certainly celebrate all about it. So we can celebrate and eat and feast to it, even though we know it's not real. So that's what they say in 1 Corinthians 8. And Paul says, if you go and eat meat in an idol's temple, you actually go in the temple and you eat it, you think it's innocent? In chapter 10, Paul says it's not innocent. Take your Bibles, go with me to 1 Corinthians 10, and you'll see how it's not, it's, you, you can't do that. You can't play that game. First Corinthians 10, verse 19 so the situation is, the Corinthians said, we can go into any idol temple and we can eat the meat and, and have the fun because that idol is nothing. It's just a piece of stone or it's just a basket. It's nothing. And since it's nothing, we can have all the party and the, and the, and the fun that goes with it and we're not hurting anything. Well, here's what Paul says. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. What, what am I saying then? that an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? I mean, we know the idols just a stone image. But then pa- Paul says this, verse 20, rather, here's what he's saying, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to who? Demons. To demons. See, the Corinthians said, you offer meat to a stone idol, it means nothing. And Paul says, you are wrong. The idol is nothing, but behind the idol are demonic forces, and when you sacrifice to the idol, which you think is nothing, behind it is the reality of Satan, and you're actually sacrificing to Satan and worshiping him. You cannot worship God and Satan. So he says this, and he goes, verse 20 again, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You go into a pagan idol and you eat the meat in an idol temple. You are fellowshipping with demons. You are not fellowshipping with God. So don't say you are. And then he gets even stronger. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't do both. What's the cup of the Lord? Hey, the cup of the Lord is this. You can't be here today giving allegiance to the Lord, drinking this cup of the Lord And then Monday through Friday, drink the cup of demons. You can't do it. And then he says, you cannot partake of the Lord's table. What's the Lord's table? This right here. You can't partake of this. And then he says, and of the table of demons. So don't think you can get away with this. You sit here in church, you eat the bread, you drink the cup, you you proclaim allegiance to Jesus. And then you go down to Apollo's temple and you sit and you eat meat offered to that idol thinking, oh, it's nothing. Paul says, it's, you are worshiping demons and fellowshipping with them. You can't do both. You can't have it both ways. It's all." So today, what we are doing is we are giving allegiance to Jesus. We are saying, my allegiance is to the one who died for me, for my sins. When I eat the bread, I am saying, Christ, you died for me. My allegiance is to you. You are my Savior. I am your servant. I am your slave. When we drink the cup, we're saying, Jesus, your blood was shed for me. My allegiance is to no other. You are my God. That's what we are really saying in this whole scene here. And that's why I thought the whole idea of allegiance, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, very powerful, very powerful. Well, let's move on to the next thing. Like I told you, I would spend more time on the first ones than the latter ones. So don't be alarmed. Here we go. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says this, We were bold in our God, verse 2, the end of it, We were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. The word conflict, agony. Because listen, the treatment he received in Philippi was similar to the treatment that he got in Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, same thing happened. He was chased out of town in the middle of the night. He was called treasonous because he was proclaiming a different king than Caesar. He was telling people, your allegiance must go to King Jesus. You must place faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and having done so, your allegiance goes to him. You cannot give allegiance to Caesar and to Jesus. And so let me end with that verse, but with one last thought, okay? I'm not, we're not going to dare try to do any more than that. Because I really just want to get the point that where does your allegiance lie? Listen, I feel like now I'm all scattered. But there are two things that Jesus has commanded us to do. Only two. Remember in the Garden of Eden, he commanded Adam and Eve only one thing. To Adam and Eve, he said, Do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. That was the one thing they had to do. Or had not to do. But that was the one command. In the church, we have only two commands. He doesn't ever say, you must have vacation Bible school, although I think it's a fantastic thing. He doesn't ever say, you must have a nursery. You must have a choir. He doesn't ever say things like that. You know what he He has said two things. You must baptize believers. You must. So those who believe in Jesus must be baptized. If you're not baptized, then you're disobedient. Now, when you get baptized, it's not by sprinkling on the head. It is by immersion. And the reason is, every, the word baptized means immerse. If you wash dishes in a sink in the Greek culture, you are baptizing your dishes. It wasn't a religious thing. It was simply, they got under the water. The idea, immerse, means to get under. And so baptizo means to get under. So we get baptized under the water. The reason is, when you stand in the water, you are picturing um, yourself as a sinner when you go under the water, you're picturing that you are you are now dead to sin because you are in Christ. And when you come up, you are a new creation, walking in the newness of life. Right? It also pictures Jesus, the holy son of God, who is fully man. And he was hanging on the cross. When you go under the water, you're picturing his burial. He died for our sins. And when you come out of the water, you're picturing his resurrection from the dead. So it's his death, burial and resurrection. It's your death to self and sin and your resurrection and newness of life. That's what baptism pictures. But baptism is a sign of allegiance. It is a symbol of allegiance. You are declaring, I am following the Lord Jesus and none other. Which is why in 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthians, um, Paul, Paul talks about the baptism for the dead. And you understand what that means. Here's what baptism for the dead meant, and this is what I believe it means. Paul says this. When you Corinthians, where people were getting baptized in the early church, their allegiance was now public to Jesus. And they could not go to the marketplace and put incense on Caesar's altar and say, Kyrios Caesar, because they would never give lordship to Caesar, even though he was the earthly king. They would not give lordship to Caesar. They would believe God and obey God over man. So what they would do is they'd go into a pool of water in the marketplace publicly, not privately at somebody's house, but publicly. And they would stand in the water and people would gather around unbelievers of all kinds. And then they would say some words and then they would give their testimony. Then they would go under the water and come up and drenching. They would say, curious Yeshua, Jesus is Lord. They would say, my allegiance is to Jesus. Now, as soon as they did that, Many times, dripping wet, they would get out and not be allowed in the marketplace to buy or sell things. They wouldn't be allowed in the political assemblies. They they wouldn't be allowed in their families, and they wouldn't go back and celebrate the same customs and traditions of the evil ones. They were now outcasts, and often they were killed. So Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, why would anybody get baptized only to know that they're probably going to die because their allegiance is to Jesus? if there's no resurrection, then don't get baptized. But if there's a resurrection, get baptized. You might get persecuted. You might die, but you're going to get raised up in the end. So just do it. Do you see what he's saying? So if you're here today and you've never been baptized, that is your first step of allegiance. It's your first step of saying, I fully affirm Jesus Christ is Lord and he is my savior. He died for me and rose again, and my allegiance goes to nobody else. I'm not, I will not bow down to the gods of this age. I will not. That's where it starts. And you only do that once. And then the rest of your life on earth, you do this. You do this. And you're saying on a monthly basis, I reaffirm my allegiance. Is that amazing? So Paul says to the Thessalonians, you want to be approved by God? make sure your allegiance is to him because my example paul's example was even after having suffered and been mistreated in philippi he came and he spoke the the gospel of god with the boldness of god he was willing to deny him his own life for the sake of the gospel so my challenge for you is to do the same all right do the same let's pray father in heaven what a blessing it is to think of the scriptures and to think of the Thessalonians who were pagan worshipers. And we know from first Thessalonians one, nine, that they turned from, they turned to God from idols. They were idol worshipers, but their allegiance was to you. They turned from that as they had, as they turned and trusted you. And father, Paul was just reminding them that his example was, his allegiance was to you and the gospel it wasn't for his own comfort. It wasn't for material gain. It wasn't for flattery. It wasn't for prestige or significance. The only reason he was doing it was because you had called him and entrusted him with the gospel. <laughs> Father, thank you that you have entrusted us with the gospel. And with boldness, we go forth from here and we preach the gospel to, one, uh, to, to those who are outside of this church. And we know it's not in vain. Every time we give the gospel this week, Father, it is not in vain. We know if we give the gospel enough, men and women will get saved in our community. The power of the, go- of the gospel is, is powerful for salvation, for transformed lives. So thank you, Father, for the challenge that we have from Thessalonians, that we can imitate the Thessalonians in their boldness to preach the gospel to everybody on the Ignatian Highway, anybody at the port, anybody around that city. Help us to do the same. We love you, and thank you, Father, so much for this remembrance of Jesus and the proclamation of our allegiance to him. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm going to ask Christy to share her song. And, um, and as she does that, maybe if I could have the deacons come and prepare the table, and then we will um, distribute the elements.